Good morning, good morning. How are we doing? Beautiful Thursday morning in the Holy Land. Look outside. Cloudy skies. Rainy. Just what we need right now. Just what we need right now. Some good rain. Good rain. As always, there is lots to talk about this morning. Lots to talk about. And, uh, we aren't, we aren't going to skirt around any issues. We aren't going to skirt around any issues. We are going to give you the commentary on what's going around, on what's going on right now that you need. That's the goal. We want to give you the commentary. A lot of issues have happened over the last 24, 48 hours. And, uh, Please God, the well, the ideas that we will discuss today will come out the right way. As I said this week, our, one of our goals is is we are going to discuss the different the different uh, cabinet members. And or the different executive actions that the new administration is imposing. And this, today we're going to start off with one of both. It is also a cabinet member and also an executive order that she is responsible for. The she is Susan Rice. Who is Susan Rice? So let's start with who is Susan Rice. She is somebody who, unfortunately, has been around for many, many, many years. She is not fresh to Washington. Rice was born in Washington, D.C. to an education policy scholar, Lois Rice, and the second black governor of the Federal Reserve System. Emmett Rice. Growing up, Rice dreamed of becoming the first senator from Washington, D.C. Oh, the first senator of Washington, D.C. Please God, that isn't going to happen. And has said her parents taught her to never use race as an excuse or advantage. She has said that her parents taught her never to use race as an excuse or advantage. After attending Stanford, she studied international relations on a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford before later advising three presidential campaigns and serving in two administrations. She was formerly the UN ambassador and national security advisor. Obama apparently urged new administration, the new administration to nominate her to Secretary of State, a position that she was denied largely in part to backlash to the backlash of the lies she told regarding the 2011 terrorist attack of the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya. What was the attack on Benghazi? The white administration knew. They were told that Benghazi was 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 under attack. And they refused to send reinforcement. They were they refused to send the army to to defend the the, con, the US consulate in Benghazi. As a result, four Americans, if I'm not mistaken, were, were were murdered. A terrorist attack. At the White House request. She replaced Secretary of State Hillary 
Rodham Clinton on all the Sunday morning talk shows. She recited, it was five days after the event. They put her out there on every single show. She recited the talking points from a CIA memo. She, suge- she suggested Benghazi was a spontaneous attack as a result of a YouTube video and not incompetence or worse from the Obama administration, a theory that was later debunked. They actually, they actually prosecuted this YouTube video, if I'm not mistaken, the person who put it out. It was an absolute, absolute lie. And she was the face of that lie. <laughs> if you think that her corruption ends there, though, no, 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 no. This is just, it's really just beginning. Foreign policy advisor under Obama. Now she's a domestic policy director, right? So sh- 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 her, her skills extend to everything. Aside from how Rice mishandled the Benghazi attacks, this baggage includes her role in unprecedented spying on the Trump campaign and transition, unmasking Trump campaign staff from intelligence reports, leaking intelligence to smear Trump staff to the press, and leaving in place investigations of the incoming Trump administration and not telling Trump officials about these investigations. Susan Rice notoriously wrote that memo on Inauguration Day, 20 Oh yeah, back in 2017, when the when the Trump campaign was celebrating their inauguration, she sent a memo to herself that everything was done by the book. Why would you need to send a memo to yourself, an official memo that everything was done by the book? She created an alibi in essence before the crime had even really been 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 found out. There was no crime as far as anyone knew yet. No one knew that they were spying on the campaign. This is this is this is, this is truly impeachable. Uh, uh, these are these are impeachable offenses from the Obama administration spying on on the Trump campaign. Watergate wasn't anywhere close to that. Let's be absolutely clear. Susan Rice collaborated with with Obama, Biden, at director FBI director Comey, and the CIA director Brennan to weaponize U.S. intelligence agencies the FBI, and the Justice Department to undermine the Trump presidency and interfere with the peaceful transition of power. The false Russian, Russia collusion hoax that Rice played a central role in promoting dog Trump throughout his presidency. We have peaceful protesters. Okay? This is now she's talking about the the the, the mostly peaceful protests of, of January 6th of the Capitol. She was quoted as saying, we have peaceful protesters focused on the very real pain and disparities that we're all wrestling with, that have to be addressed. And then we have extremists who've come to try to hijack those protests and turn them into something very different, Rice said on CNN. And they're probably also, I would bet, based on my experience, I'm not reading the intelligence these days, but based on my experience, this is right out of the Russian playbook as well. I would not be surprised to learn that they have fomented some of these extremists on both sides using social media. She continued, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that they are funding it in some way, shape, or form. So here she goes with the Russian collusion hoax. This is somebody who is shouldn't be anywhere near the levers of power. This is a very dangerous individual. She has no moral compass. But... That didn't stop the new administration from installing her. She is the new domestic domestic policy advisor. And so this is a clip of her talking to the press. I'm going to play this clip briefly because she is introducing a new executive order. 
Investing in equity for economic growth creates jobs for all. Let's listen here. For so many Americans, and all Americans need urgent federal action to meet this moment. Today, President Biden will deliver a national address on his plans to advance racial justice and equity, starting with an equitable and inclusive recovery. President Biden will renew the federal government's commitment to making the American dream real for families across the nation by taking ambitious steps to redress inequality in our economy and expand opportunity for communities that have been left behind including communities of color. His economic plans make historic, make historic investments in underserved communities and put equity at the heart of our recovery. His ambitious agenda builds on a legacy of Americans forging opportunity out of crisis. These aren't feel-good policies. The evidence is clear. Investing in equity is good for economic growth, and it creates jobs for all Americans. Economists have estimated that the U.S. economy has lost a staggering $16 trillion over the last 20 years because of discrimination against families of color. If we closed racial gaps in income and opportunity, these same economists have estimated we could add $5 trillion to the U.S. economy over the next five years and add over six million new jobs for all Americans. So building a more equitable economy is essential if Americans are going to compete and thrive in the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Susan Rice. Equity and equality. Equity and equality. What is the difference between equity and equality? So they sound similar, don't they? Surely they must be. They sound similar. They must be. So I found an article from 2017. As we know, we like to try to find things that are not exactly current before the TDS uh, took effect. Today in this article, we are going to explore one of the most controversial topics the world is facing these days, i.e. equity or equality in the areas of education, health, sports, opportunities, and so on. However, there are still millions of people who have a common misconception that equity is same as equality. But the truth is that they are different. Equity refers to the just and fair provision of resources, resources to all the individuals, which represents impartiality. Conversely, equality denotes provision of same resources to all people, i.e., it is the state of being the same when it comes to status, rights, and opportunities, in this article, you may find all the important differences between equity and equality. So have a look. Equity versus equality. So the meaning, definition. Equity is the virtue of being just, even-handed, and impartial. Equality is described as a state where everyone is at the same level. What is it? Means, equity is a means. Equality is an end. Distribution, fair. Equity is a fair distribution. Equality is even. Equity, differences and attempts to counteract unequal individuals' opportunities. Differences and attempts to counteract unequal individual opportunities. Equality, sameness, and treats everyone as equal. 
ensures, equity ensures that people have what they need. Equity, equality, providing everyone the same things. Very different. Definition of equity. The term equity refers to the system of justice and fairness, where there is an even-handed treatment of all the people. Under this system, the individual needs and requirements are taken into account and treated accordingly. Equity demands fairness in every situation, i.e., whether it is the distribution of benefits or burdens. Therefore, people are treated fairly, but differently as their circumstances are given weight. It seeks to provide all the individuals an equal opportunity to let them attain their maximum potential. In this way, equity ensures that all the individuals are provided the resources they need to have access to the same opportunities as the general population. Where's the definition of equality? Equality is when everyone is treated in the same way without giving any effect to their need and requirements. In finer terms, it is a state of getting the same quantity or value or status. It is a situation where each and every individual is granted same rights and responsibilities irrespective of their individual differences. Equality is the lifeline of the democratic society that aims to prevent discrimination and provides an equal opportunity to all. It can be racial equality, equality between rich and poor, men and women, etc. The central idea of equality is that all the individuals get equal treatment in the society and are not discriminated on the best basis of race, sex, caste, creed, nationality, disability, age, religion, and so forth. Okay? So, which side do we fall on, uh, on the side of? Equity or equality? They're not the same. They, they, it's a sleight of hand. They tell us. They use this word equity. We, and, 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 and most people just assume that it's the same thing. The difference between equity and equality can be drawn clearly on the following grounds. Justice, justness and fairness in the manner of treating individuals are called equity. Equality is what we call the state where everyone is at the same level. Equity is a process while equality is the outcome, i.e. equity is the necessary condition to be fulfilled to achieve latter. While equity represents impartiality, i.e. the distribution is made in such a way to even opportunities for all people, conversely, equality indicates uniformity where everything is evenly distributed among people where everything is evenly distributed among people. In equity, the differences are recognized and efforts are made to counteract the manner in which individual opportunities are not equal. On the contrary, equality recognizes sameness and so aims at treating everyone as equal. Which side do we are we on? Have we figured it out yet? Have we figured it out yet? Okay, equality is the same opportunity. I'm going to put it in, 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 a, in a, just sum it up. Equality is the same opportunity. Whereas the equity, it gets every, every, get everyone else gets. Okay? Must gauge by group outcome if fairness has been achieved. So these are very dangerous ideas. These are very dangerous ideas. We believe in equality. We believe in giving people the opportunity, same opportunity. Let's assume that that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about it on any Jewish level. We're talking about it on a societal level, democratic level. But we do believe in giving people the same opportunity. Everyone should have the same opportunity, but we're not going to manipulate that. And this is exactly what this new administration is, 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 has signed into law. They have a record. They've completely, the, the, the previous administration had four executive orders in the first week. 
And this administration is already at 33. Okay, this is a very dangerous, very there are very dangerous things that they're that they're that they're that they're playing with right now. Very dangerous things that they're playing with. Very dangerous things that they're suggesting, and 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 the reason why we have to be afraid of it is because when the when the left signs an executive order, the entire administrative state, because it's on the left, it attempts to implement it right away. When they say that they're going to uh, uh, scrap the 1776 project, it's considered gone. It's done. It's a very dangerous thing. Equity versus equality, especially because most people, most people don't understand the nuance of, of, of the two, of the, the, the nuance of the two, of the two different terms. People just equate them. Oh, equity and equality must be the same thing. No. No, they're not, they're very different. We believe in equality. People should have the same opportunity. But equity is going to manipulate that everybody not just have the same opportunity, rather, they should have the same outcome. And whenever we hear this word, equity, we have to remember that. So they've put out Susan Rice, who's one of the biggest liars of the previous administration. And believe me, there's a very long list there. We're going to go through the administration. I said we're going to go. We're going to try and pick one by one. It's a very serious thing. Very serious thing. Okay. Well, the uh, yesterday, yesterday, there was a lot of controversy. A lot of controversy sparked over. Over this uh, satirical episode of a television show called Eretz Nehederet. Literally a wonderful land. Eretz Nehederet. I'm not familiar with this, uh, with this show, but apparently it's, uh, it's a comedy show on one of these Israeli television station channels. And part of me wants to just ignore this entirely. I don't even want to talk about it. But it, Throughout my internal debate, a different part of me has won, and I I want to try to give a, a little a little perspective. So, there's a Times of Israel report on this. Before we do that, you know, I'll read the Times of Israel report. Okay, <clears throat> a popular satirical television show sparked outrage on Wednesday with its portrayal of a top ultra orthodox rabbi with politicians and members of the public calling the skit disrespectful and offensive to the religious community. However, the skit from the hit show, Eretz Naderet, also won a praise from many for its courage in tackling the issue at a time of increased tensions with the Haredi community over defiance by some of its members in the face of efforts to impose the coronavirus lockdown. Now, we use this word courage. In fact, in this article, the word is uh, uh, has... Uh, Quotations around it. So it's interesting. What kind of courage are they talking about? Does this require moral courage to publicly disgrace Haredim right now? Is that called moral courage? Is it physical courage? Bill Maher got his show canceled. He had a show back on ABC and it ran for about 10 years. It was called Polit- Polit- Pol- Politically Incorrect. If I'm not mistaken, it was a talk show, 
and he got canceled because in 2011, October or so, October or so after after 9/11, 2001, excuse me, 2001, October of 2001, he he said, if I'm not mistaken, the quote was that these terrorists were courageous. That there was a um, there was some sort of campaign out there, and they were being called cowards. These were called cowards, and he said, "Well, I don't know if we can call them cowards. I mean, they did, they did uh, blow them, you know, blow themselves up. They did, they did die for their cause. That would that does require some sort of courage. And based on the explanation that we gave, if you recall last week, moral courage versus physical courage. There is an element of physical courage." There is an element of physical courage and willing to person willing to die for the cause. There is an element of physical courage there. So it could be that if if there is courage, it may be a physical courage. But there's no there is no moral courage in attacking Haredim. There's no moral courage in attacking Haredim. There could be you know in the sense that that the Haredim are compared to the Muslims. If you attack a Muslim leader or you attack Muhammad, some sort of comical satirical depiction of Muhammad, you can run for your life. You hope you can uh, reach a, a city of refuge before they uh, before they have your blood. You can hope, but no no guarantees. So there is that there they are equating, and this is why I'm trying to talk about it because they are equating both sides. They are equating the the extremist Haredi uh, group to the extremist Muslim group. That the Haredi group are now going to come for the blood, and I don't know. You know, I think there's a conversation to be had as far as what is our true hashkafa, our true outlook on on disgracing uh, Chachmei Yisrael. I think there's a conversation to be had about that as far as how we would, in an ideal society, not in the world that we're living in today, but in an ideal society, how would we how would we look at that? Just to throw that out there. Of course, I, I don't condone any violence. She said it many times, but I think on a on a on a on a, on a philosophical on a on a hypothetical level, I think we can have that conversation. Regardless, let's continue this article. The past week has seen widespread rioting, clashes with police trying to enforce lockdowns, and open rebellion despite virus rates being significantly higher in ultra orthodox communities. Where about the death rates? What about what are the, what are those? Are they consistent with the with the with the rates of of the virus spread? The Eretz Nederet skit focused on Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who we are going to refer to as Rabbi Chaim throughout this article, even though they, they obviously are mizalzel. They obviously have no problem cha- you know, referring to him as Kanievsky. We are not going to do that. The Eretz Nadaret skit focused on Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky widely acknowledges the preeminent living Ashkenazi Haredi sage and, and, Bibi, and Bibi's relationship with him, which has been criticized as overly deferential. The skit opened with anchor E.L. Kitsitz, Whatever, welcoming the Prime Minister of Israel to his show, but instead of Netanyahu, an actor playing of Chaim 93 was wheeled out, accompanied by another actor portraying his grandson, Yankee, who acts as a spokesman and surrogate for the rabbi. The portrayal had Kanievsky mumbling mostly incoherently into his beard in Yiddish, while his grandson asked him questions and interpreted the answers in an, exagger- in a, in, in an exaggerated Ashkenazi Hebrew accent. A short while later, Netanyahu shows up begging the rabbi for permission to do almost everything, come on the show, sit down, take a sip of water. A brief attempt by Netanyahu to assert his authority is immediately shut down. Oh, Rav Chaim, excuse me, I think I made a mistake there. 
Okay, a brief attempt by by Bibi to assert his authority is immediately shut down by Rav Chaim, suggesting that the ultra-Orthodox parties will support Netanyahu's rival, Gidon Saar, in the upcoming election, which is, which quickly has Netanyahu promising that all they will hear ab- about from him in the future is giving them money. Maybe I'm going to change it. Maybe I'm making, making changing my mind in the middle of this here. Maybe I will prefer to refer to him as Kanievsky, just because I don't know, maybe I don't want to give them the credence. I don't know. Okay. I'll open myself to feedback there. This skit was largely a parody of the situation where Netanyahu has had to repeatedly beg the ultra-Orthodox to abide by lockdown rules and keep schools closed, often with minimal effect. Critics have accused Bibi of avoiding cracking down on the Haredi public or to not anger the ultra-Orthodox coalition partners. Earlier this week, Netanyahu, which we've discussed on the show, earlier this week, Netanyahu was, was asked why he recently spoke with uh, Rav Chaim's grandson about closing schools during the lockdown and not with the rabbi himself. Rabbi Kanievsky isn't available. Everyone who speaks with him speaks with his grandson. I also spoke with the grandson. I don't see this as an insult, Bibi said during a press conference. Although the portrayal was largely a criticism of Netanyahu, it sparked outrage in ultra-Orthodox circles and from religious politicians. Outrage in ultra-Orthodox circles? How many ultra-Orthodox even know about this? How many ultra-Orthodox even know about this, 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 this skit? Only ultra-Orthodox who are in some way connected to... Uh, some way connected... How else, how else would they know about this? <laughs> Although I shouldn't say that there was a great, a great line that went out back in, uh, Pesach time last year, how, uh, the Haredim didn't know about these lockdowns, but somehow they knew immediately about, about the grants that were being given to, uh, Haredi families. So, so news does travel. News does travel. I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced that this has actually, uh, reached the ultra-Orthodox circles the same way. I, I'd be honest, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think so. We will read. Vital Smotrich sent out a, uh, a response to this, and I think this response is noteworthy. This is, is worthy of of uh, discussing, mentioning. May have, I'm not saying I'm voting for Vital Smotrich, but I think there. I didn't see any. I didn't see. I don't have Twitter. I didn't see anybody else's comment. It could be other Haredi politicians also commented, but I think Vital Smotrich is worthy of note, noting. In any case, Rabbi Kanievsky isn't available. Fine. Although the portrayal is largely a criticism of Netanyahu, it sparked outrage in the ultra-religious The exalted Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky is the rabbi and spiritual guide for many Jews of, in Israel and around the world, creating a hurtful and disparaging imitation of him is deeply hurting to religious sentiments. Wrote the Aspera Affairs Minister Omar Yankalevich of. Blue and white, the first female ultra-orthodox minister. Oh, so okay, so now I understand. So they see there, they've stretched the term ultra-orthodox to include a minister, Omar Yankalevich. So then, I guess you're right. It could have sparked outrage in the ultra-orthodox circles. So that if she's ultra-orthodox, then then why not? Right, no problem. Okay, very good. National Union MK Betzal Smutrich pro- uh, protested against the harm to the honor of Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky. Also, here it goes. It's right here. These satirists are not just mocking the rabbi, but the entire traditional religious and ultra-Orthodox communities who revere the sages of Israel, he tweeted. Channel 12, which airs Eretz Nadaret, said the presenter kisses... Oh, no, so it doesn't have the whole thing. So I'll just finish up when I, once it already has it here. He said, he said, while you are making... While you, let's try and find it here. Once, once we're once we're reading it out. Let's see. He said, um, they're not just being mazalzal in Rav Chaim; they're being mazalzal in the entire religious Masorati, Haredi Dati community that reveres Gedalia Yisrael. Habuz shelachem lamed biikar aleichem ba'al olam ham arachim shelachem. It's your disgrace. It shows us who you are and who you're and who, and who those who value you are. And during this time, so you find it during the time of this 
um, idiotic um, show, Rav Chaim will learn another several Dapi Gemara and everything else is irrelevant. And I like that last line. I like that last line because he didn't just spout platitudes about the reverence of G'day Yisrael, which, you know, everyone is doing. He also said what's really important is that the, the, you're, you're, you're spending, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time on doing whatever you're doing. Reb Chaim is learning. He's learning Tyro. He's learning another, a few, a few Blatter Gemara. What else is more important? What else, what else? You're relevant is the point. It's almost the actual antithesis. You think, the, the, we're going to discuss from different angles, but what is the criticism of, of, of uh, uh, Chazal discuss? What is the criticism? What are the Rabbanon doing? Says the Salah so eloquently, while he's learning, he is doing everything right now. What he is doing, that is, that, that is paramount. What he's doing, that is the purpose. You and your pathetic little program. He's going to be learning a new, a few Blatter Gemara that's more important. It doesn't matter how many times he's learned, he's learned, it doesn't matter how many times he, how much he knows, his learning of a few, a few more Blatter Gemara, that is far more important, a few more folios of, of, of the Talmud, that is far more important than your program. Again, I don't have Twitter, it could be that other Haredi, uh, politicians commented, maybe we'll see throughout this, this, um, this piece here, I didn't finish it, but in any case, in any case, let's go. Um, channel 12, which airs, airs Nader to the presenter's telephone number had been shared widely on social media with people urged to personally harass him. Another of Kanievsky's grandsons, Arya, told Channel 12 they were not amused by the portrayal. This really hurts a lot of people. My grandfather's a spiritual guide for, to hundreds of thousands of people who do not make a move without him. For them, this is difficult, he said. They don't make a move without him. Okay. However, many others defended the show and portrayal as an important beacon of free speech and a mirror to Israeli society. If a satirical show has to think twice about imitating a rabbi as great and respected as they may be, then we need to re-examine the levels of freedom of speech in our country, wrote Yesh Atid M.K. Yoel Raz, Razvazov. So just remember that he and, and Omar Yankalevich had no problem serving together. Yankalevich had no problem serving together. Other than, you know, she was at one point blue and white included Yesha Tid, right? Others compared the incident to the Prophet Muhammad cartoons in France, the levels of courage from Eretz Nayaderet this evening. Charlie Hebdo wrote, social media personality, Raz Cypress, the long-running topical sketch comedy. So yeah, that's how, that's how it's being compared, right? It's being compared. That's why it's courageous because, because the Haredim are going to do exactly what the Muslims do. They're going to cut off the heads of these satirists. That's exactly what they're, what, what they're being accused of. So therefore it's courageous. The long-running topical sketch comedy shown, show is known for skewering Israeli politicians and other figures as well as making fun of other sacred cows. This is not the first time Erez has sparked ire among religious co- communities. In 2018, the show was accused of anti-Semitism for using tefillin to recreate the signature hairstyle of Israeli's Eurovision Song Contest winner Neta Barzilai on the head of then-Education Minister Naftali Bennett. In 2016, the country's top rabbinical authorities condemned the promotion showing the cast standing around an open Torah scroll in a synagogue in 2008. So they're, they're, they're used to this. They're used to this. Uh, in 2018, Netanyahu panned the show for a segment he said made light of the Holocaust, but the skit now comes at a time of sky-high tension involving Haredi communities because of COVID-19 contagion. Nearly daily v- violent clashes with police enforcing the closure reached a peak on Sunday when protests in the predominantly Haredi city of B'nai Brak damaged two buses. Again, slide of hand. 
protesters in the predominantly city Haredi, why don't they say they're Haredi protesters? Is it perhaps because this is in question? Is it perhaps because the people who set fire to that bus are actually not Haredi? But that's not what they say. Okay, one of which was torched and its driver attacked, suffering light injuries. Doesn't say the Haredi. Why don't they say that? The violence just notice that again. Notice that sleight of hand. The violence drew broad condemnation, including Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef, one of Israel's two chief rabbis, who called the perpetrators young delinquents and rioters who are desecrating God's name while urging the Haredi community to denounce them. There have been numerous instances of flagrant violations of the of the lockdown in Haredi communities, with schools in particular remaining open, even though the current lockdown orders require shuttering. The edu- entire education system, with the exclusion of special education institutions, all non-essential businesses have also been closed. Rabbi, Rabbi Kanievsky is hugely influential, an inf- uh, leader of the non-Hasidic Lithuanian ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, with hundreds of thousands of followers. He has confirmed, to, he was confirmed to have had the coronavirus in October, just two days after the Haaretz Daily reported that he violated quarantine. This is a zilzal. Hosting visitors at his home in B'nai Brak despite being required to self-isolate due to his exposure to a confirmed coronavirus carrier. Chaim has faced intense criticism of his handling of the pandemic and rulings given to his followers and has at times instructed schools to reopen in defiance of government decisions, leading hundreds of millions, hundreds of institutions to illicitly open their doors during the pandemic. Okay. So, I want to ask one question here. And while I might face some criticism for this question, I'm going to just ask the question. I'm not necessarily going to give an entire answer, but I'm going to ask the question. Who is being, who is being disgraced from this skit? Is it Rav Chaim? Or is it the brand of Kachalashi Arucha? The brand that we've created surrounding Rav Chaim? Who, who is being disgraced? Is it, is it Rav Chaim or is it Yanki Kanievsky who's being disgraced? What were some of the comments? What were some of the comments? Here, I'm going to read some of the comments. Uh, well done, Eretz Nadarit. Funny as it was. Also true. How dare the ultra-Orthodox complain? They have no problem passing judgment on every aspect of secular life. If you are going to dish it out, then you have to learn to take it. Thank you, Eretz Nadarit. It was quite funny. Spot on. Now let's vote these guys out of the coalition in March. Brave Haredi youth standing up to the police doing what's right. As to the rabbis, didn't they generally, t- didn't they generally 90% tell people not to leave Europe and do and to do what they were told during World War II. This is on Times of Israel. Okay, this was this isn't an Eretz Nederet, uh, uh You know, this is on Times of Israel. Um, how, how come the Haredim even saw the skit? I didn't see the skit. I thought they didn't have televisions. I, you know, I haven't watched it. I don't, I, I, as of now, I don't plan to watch it. Let's not allow the truth to get in the way of politics. No Jew... No Jew should, refe- uh, should revere other than God. No pictures or sculptures are to be seen on any human-like person at any synagogue. So to put this man, a smart, intelligent, and proud Jew, to a position of one that should be reversed, revered is not proper at all. He's not God or God's son, and for sure he knows that's something quite different to what we are than Christianity. Okay? So there's there's there are lots of... Lots of uh, comments here, mostly in favor of it. There's, we talked at the beginning of this week about the 1619 project versus versus the 1776 project, and we spoke of it from one angle. But 
there's another angle. There's another angle that I want to discuss. Uh, today, uh, Douglas Murray came out with a book called Madness of Crowds. And he put out a Prager U video in order to serve for self-promotion. That's what people do. So he put out a Prager U video talking about the statue destroyers. Okay, we, we, why is the, why is there such a shift? Why are they trying to, to claim that 1619 was the found, founding of, of America? Why was there such a shift? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna discuss what he said in that video, but I'm gonna throw in one caveat. And that is that I, I, I question the premise that he's going to, that he's, that he, that he, that he lays out. One of the, so I'm gonna, let's, let's start. Let's start. Okay. Douglas Murray. Should we judge people of the past based on contemporary moral standards? If morality is constantly changing, what's to say that our current definition is even moral? Maybe a hundred years ago, we were more moral. Okay, so this is, this is, this is, this is, this is where I, I, I agree. Now, he doesn't necessarily take this throughout the whole video, but this is true. We know. The Gemara says in, 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 in Shabbos, Kufir Beis, Gemara says, in Rishonu Bnei Malachim, Anachnu Bnei Anashim. If the people preceding us, if the Tanoim, if they were Malachim, then we are people. And if they were people, then we are donkeys. And not donkeys like those of Repinchas ben Yair and Repinchas ben Dyson and Repinchas ben Yair, but rather donkeys, regular Standard donkeys. So this idea in, in, in general, I think we have to question whether or not people today are even more moral. I know it's a very hard thing for us to, for us to recognize. And I'm not saying that slavery and, and how it was conducted was something that was moral. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really going to get into that. I'm just saying this notion that simply because we are we, that we are today more moral. I think that we have to recognize that that isn't true. People in history should have known better, as if they should have known the future. They, they believe in empathy over facts. History is to learn from, but to judge it from the preordained left-wing conclusions about such ill-defined concepts as social justice, equity, and tolerance. They overwhelmingly believe that they are the true judges over history. They or their teachers know nothing about history. History is comprised of nuance, complexity, and context. Aside from this attitude, the ignorance, the arrogance, that since these people are from of such moral character, the arrogance that's of such moral character, I have nothing to learn from them. If anything, just the opposite. Is it any wonder why the statues are coming down? 1619 was an attempt to make it the foundational date of the American Republic. 1776 was just about protecting the founder's slaves. We are evaluating these giants of men, and I want to put in here as my own obviously commentary, these giants of men, the founding of America existed during the time of the Vilna Gain. You know, the Vilna Gain had the ability to argue with previous generations that even People of previous generations understood that they couldn't. 
Okay, there's a famous anecdote from a uh, story from from Vlajan, I believe, that 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 the Vilna Gaon could 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 argue with Rishonim with Ramban. Yeah, he 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 wasn't as great as you know. I'm not I'm not getting into that that comment that that, that statement, but the idea that that the the I, I this is my own idea here, but that the the I'm not equating God forbid uh, uh, the founders to Vilna Gaon, but I'm simply saying that there was an element of of genius. That existed in the period in the in the, in the mid seventeen hundreds, mid eighteenth century. There, what we see that the Vilna Gaon was uh, existed. The Vilna Gaon was able, and 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 he was in essence a plant of previous generations. So so too, I do believe that perhaps the founders had a had a, had, a, had a had a gift of intellect, had a gift of genius that wasn't consistent with the. To, with with the readers of Darius, with with standard uh, 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 generations uh, uh, going down in in in, in levels, the general concept that that the subsequent generations are 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 lesser than previous generations. That's why this initial statement that we read at the beginning if, that if they are like people, then we are like donkeys, and if they are like people, if they if they are like if they are like a malachim, then we are people. If they are like people, then we are donkeys. That's the that's the premise of that. So I'm just, I'm just pointing out that the within this period that we recognize that the vulnerable existed, so too did the founders. So that that just gives a little bit of of credence to the idea that they indeed potentially possessed a supreme intellect that wasn't consistent with the period, with the standard digression, standard digression. This is my thought. In any case, we are evaluating these giants of men based on one solitary issue. America is the freest, most prosperous nation in world history as being exceptional in one thing. What's that? Being exceptionally bad, says Douglas Murray. Purposely destructive view. This is purposely, it is a purposely destructive view. History is not a playpen for our moral judgment. People acted on the information they had just as we do today. So again, this is where I, I challenge this idea that we have to recognize that people of previous generations may in fact have been more moral than us. We can't just dismiss them, simply that we know better. Sure, it would have been nice for the founders to abolish, to abolish slavery in the Constitution. Some even tried. But they had not been willing, but had they not been willing to compromise, there would be no Constitution and no United States. It would have been nice had the Japanese surrendered before the atom bombs were dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Truman had to make his decision of the information he had, namely that an Allied invasion could cost over a million, a million American and Japanese lives. The woke mind abhors, this is, this is his line here, the woke, some, some of this is mine, some of this is his, but the woke, the woke mind abhors these subtleties. It knows that it is right. Understand that? So it abhors these subtleties. There's no nuance. In history, they were immoral. Therefore, we take we take them down. It knows the woke mind knows that it is right. Doesn't think, doesn't suppose. Doesn't, it knows that it is right. The great figures of the past did the best they could under the circumstances in which they found themselves. He astutely points out that their efforts largely succeeded, which is why we are here. They tried, you know, the Declaration of Independence. The, it doesn't mean that this is what, these are the values, these are the ideals. They tried to honor Sir Isaac Newton an award for his discoveries in physics. He replied that he was only able to do what he did 
because he was only standing on the shoulders of the giants of the great men who went before him. Copernicus, Descartes, Galileo. Newton's humility is rejected by the left as misinformed ideas of the past. Divorced from our past, we would be utterly lost. We would be forced to start again with far less insight and poorer examples as our guides. Ironically, due to the statue destroyers, these great men of the past have never looked greater. So that's Douglas Murray, and you know, if you want to see it, you can see it. It's a great piece. But this this is a value. This is a value that there are different angles. There are different angles. Again, you know, we discuss different points. There are different angles to look at it. There are different angles to look at it. Stephen Harper, Stephen Harper has a little bit of a different angle to discuss, you know, what's nationalism, right? Because that's, that's also this, this topic here is nationalism, right? What is nationalism? What is, what is, what is nationalism? Why is nationalism so, so despised? Why is nationalism so despised? Stephen Harper defines the opposite of nationalism. Opposite of nationalism is alienism. It's just good for this conversation. We're gonna, you know, these are these are points that we can bring up at different points, different times. But I think it's just important for the conversation. Alienism is the opposite of nationalism. Our value is wrong. Our culture is wrong. The other guy is always right. Supporting Israel is for national self-interest. He says that this attitude is incredibly myopic and dangerous for politicians to abandon Israel. But the reasons the left wants to abandon Israel is for precisely the same reasons, because they they, they, they embrace alien, alienism. It's his term, I believe. Alienism. They see Israel as a society like ours, and they want to blame it for all the problems of the region. Israel is a manifestation of the left, of, of the West. An example, the Muslim women have the right to cover their face because no man should tell a woman how to dress. But what do you think that is? Asks Stephen Harper. The man is telling the woman how to dress. The liberal mindset validates it as Western feminism as opposed to the anti-woman aspect of Islamism. We are always at fault. And we are always to blame. That doesn't mean we are flawless, but notice this point from Stephen Harper. We are the quickest to acknowledge our faults. We are the quickest to acknowledge our faults. The Declaration of Independence doesn't mean that this is where America America was perfect in 1776. America recognizes its its faults. Now take that with a different phenomena that that we are experiencing within the Haredi community. There's there is an issue within the Haredi community. And and I think that this background is is a, is a great segue. There's a book by Rabbi Emanuel Feldman called Tales Out of Jerusalem. Those who are close, close to me know that I'm a a, a big uh, chassid of Rabbi Feldman, and uh, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this essay out. It's called Pages. Read this essay out because I, I think that this is a, this is this this shows the different side to this argument. No sooner does a leading Rosh Hashiva or rabbinic luminary pass, it's called Gadolography, a storied life. No sooner does a leading Rosh Hashiva or rabbinic luminary pass from the scene, than the Orthodox media swings into action with his life story. Articles, reminiscences, 
depreciations, and book-length treatments, all of them suitably adulatory, begin to appear so that even relatively obscure G'daylam become more famous in death than in life. Most of these life stories, with a few shining exceptions, have common themes. The individual was brilliant, profound, wise, righteous, and kind. He was never angry, never discouraged, never wasted any time, never had any inner conflicts. Thus it comes as no surprise that certain questions, questions that are crucial to our understanding of any major leader, will rarely be addressed. For example, for example, did Torah study come easily to this particular gadol? Did Torah study come easily to this particular gadol? Or was he possessed for only an average, was he, or was he possessed for, of only an average mind, learning to master the intricacies of Torah through sheer force of will or dil- and diligence? Did he ever have intellectual struggles or any crises of faith? Did he ever suffer any personal disappointments or tragedy? Was his path from infancy to world-renowned scholarship and leadership an un- unimpeded trajectory upward? Or were there other paths that beckoned, other byways that tempted him? We learn all about the Guttel's dazzling scholarship, but how was he as a father, a husband, a teacher? He was obviously a very angelic person. In what ways was he human as well? Was he constantly engaged in study and acts of chesed, or did other matters occupy him as well? Was he gregarious, or did he live an isolated existence? We will never know. First, the awe and reverence that are integral elements of this genre preclude any independent research, which explains why many of the life stories we get are not biographies at all, but monochromatic, one-dimensional hagiographies. I've gone back and forth whether it's hagiographies and or hagiographies. For those who are going to ask, I do believe it is hagiography. That is what my independent research has has told me. Even though in English there is a there's a general rule that whenever a G or a C is followed by an I, E, or Y sound, it then becomes a soft G. So it should, which is for all those in Israel who use the word uh, gigabyte. The reason why is because they're applying that rule in English. Yeah, there are there are, there are very few exceptions. To this, but okay, getting off the tangent. But just for those who are going to, I, my research has told me it's hagiographies. In any case, in any case, getting back to the <laughs> to this uh, one-dimensional hagiographies of saintly people who were born perfect and remained perfect throughout their perfect lives. Lives. One often wonders when young people read about such flawless creatures, are they uplifted or discouraged? One can only imagine the impact upon a bright 15-year-old yeshiva student who has the intellect and drive to become a great Torah scholar. When he reads that by age 15, this or that great Rav knew the Talmud by heart and had written two world-recognized svarim on the world on the most recondite rec- subjects in halacha. There is another critical problem endemic to this genre, a stylistic and literary one. These are not so much biographies, even in the loosest sense of the word, as written accounts of a person's life, as they are collections of stories of a person's life. Stories and anecdotes, both written and verbal, are obviously an integral part of any history. But in today's Godel hagiography, one resists the temptation to label a Godelography. One of the common characteristics of these ubiquitous stories is that they are, well, common. 
More often than not, they shed no new light on character or personality. On the contrary, they tend to trivialize the subject and drag him down to the level of the ordinary. Frequently, they illustrate a quality that is hardly extraordinary and would be considered normal behavior for any decent human being. We were informed that Rav so-and-so always made certain that the woman who asked him a Shiloh was treated respectfully. But why is it unusual for a human being, much less someone who is steeped in Torah ethics, to treat another human being with respect? Or we read that Rav such-and-such was extremely honest, never cheated anyone, and was meticulous about paying all his bills and debts on time. But this is the kind of behavior not expected of any decent Jew, no? What? Why? Why must it be featured and literally italicized as if it were something uniquely found in this Godel's character? These are not rhetorical questions. In a profound sense, an act of chesed performed by a great Torah personality is different in kind from the same act performed by a less saintly person. When Rav Moshe Feinstein is careful not to denigrate even the silliest of halachic inquiries, when Yosef B. Soloveitchik followed a student into the lunchroom to inform the Talmud that he was on target in his Talmudic analysis, while he, Rav Yosef Baer, was mistaken, there is more here than garden variety decency and intellectual honesty. For a true guggle, by virtue of his own inner qualities and spirituality, brings to his deed a certain quality of holiness, a certain state of mind and inwardness that is unique to one living a life of Torah. The identical act of kindness or honesty performed by someone not steeped in the sanctity of Torah does not bear the same spiritual resonance and power. These are subtle matters that are worthy of discussion, but unfortunately, most of the storytellers do not make the effort with inevitable platitudinous results. Further, what are we to make of a literary genre that contains more stories than life? Is it because there being no depth in the writing, no new perceptions of insights into the personality under review, we are left with only a string of loosely connected, generic, interchangeable, Lego-like anecdotes that are by and large unimpressive? Agenda-driven stories that are devoid of content combined with biographies that are short on objectivity and long on reverential awe, combined to create a new genre that cannot be taken seriously by anyone but the most naive and incredulous. They are stories and there are stories. There are stories and there are stories. The story of Joseph and his brothers, the long sustained narr- the longest sustained narrative in the entire Torah, is obviously more than a mere story. As part of Torah, it is more than narrative, and its multi-layered structure illuminates and instructs in ways that we cannot fathom. But at the very least, it contains critical lessons for living, and it does this by painting a full picture of its protagonists. To view it merely as a good as good literature would be to denigrate it. But even on the most elementary level, the narrative with its lights and shadows, shadows, positives and negatives, is uplifting precisely because it is multi-hued, uncompromising and unrelenting in its honesty. One shudders to think how it would be written today. Would any contemporary religious writer dare mention that Joseph in his youth was concerned with his physical appearance, as Rashi does on Genesis 37-2? As for Jacob's favoring one son over another, would not our writer gloss over the inconvenient, that inconvenient fact? Would Joseph's tale-bearing be omitted, as well as the fears and envy of, his, of the brothers? Would not the story of Judah and Tamar be excised because it might offend, as with the story of Joseph and the wife of Potiphar? And the slaughter of the inhabitants of Shechem is so unbecoming the sons of Jacob that it might best be elided. The actual hurling of Joseph into the pit 
and his subsequent sale into slavery, would not this cast an unflattering and cruel light on the brothers and be expurgated from the story? In today's guttlography, the term is irresistible. We would be, this is Rabbi Feldman writing that, obviously. The term is irresistible. We would be treated only to the bare bones information that Joseph, whom Jacob loved very much, mysteriously disappeared, causing Jacob great anguish, anguish, and did not appear until 22 years later than, later as viceroy of Egypt. Jacob, we would be told, never lost hope since he was a great tzaddik, and Joseph, also a great tzaddik like his father, always knew that he would see his father again one day, and when because of the great famine Jacob went down to Egypt, he finally was reunited with his son and lived happily ever after in Goshen until he died at the ripe old age of 147. What is striking about the real Joseph narrative is that we emerge from it not only deeply stirred, but also with a keener understanding of human nature, of ourselves, and our most, and most significantly, of our own relationship to man and God. Perhaps these ought to be the criteria by which a guttle story is to be judged. Is it unique or is it ordinary? Does it impart a crucial, crucial lesson? Does it flesh out the personality of the subject, giving us a deeper understanding of who he really was? Does it energize the mind and uplift the soul? Does it display the Torah in action? A story is a means to an end, not an end in itself. A life story should reveal, first of all, a life. Anecdotes, though important, are secondary to that life. Gedele Yisrael are the true leaders of the Jewish people. Their integrity, scholarship, piety, and vision, their abiding faith in the eternity of the Jewish people and in the promises of God are the stars by which the people of Israel navigate through the dark night of the Gullus. Their inner passion and spiritual vitality help the masses of Jews cope with the crises that continually beset us. It is precisely because Gedolim and Poskim are so crucial to Jewish existence that these that searching biographies grounded in life and truth are so indispensable. The masses of Jews thirst for uplift and inspiration. Puerile, cookie-cutter life stories are no tribute to the G'daylum and no help to us. That incisive biographies do appear from time to time only underscores the fact that it can be done. Such writing requires not only objectivity and careful speech, but also a recognition of the reader's intelligence and his ability to absorb ideas and subtleties. When a reader senses that he is being condescended to, that instead of an account of a meaningful life, he is being offered bedtime stories, that reader, if he has any self-respect, will turn away, which is a pity, because he is turning away not only from the story of a significant life, but also from the ideals which that life represents. So, after reading that, I want to mention a couple of things. One is that the reason why I, I, I didn't really want to discuss this today was because I don't believe in giving them credence. I remember years ago, I after the making of a Gullah came out, there was a book that came out which was trivializing uh, the Tanoim, and, you know, painting them in a very humanistic, contemporary uh, uh, picture. And I asked the, a person who was very close to the individual who wrote it. I said, I said, do you anticipate that book being banned? You know, and it, as, as was the culture of the time. And he said, no, they, they don't ban every book. They ban books which are a threat to the, to Haredi society. You know, this individual is no, uh, is, 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 isn't relevant to the Haredi society. So there's no point in banning it. And that's, and that's, and that I think is a very true outlook. We don't have to ban everything. We don't have to criticize everything because we don't have to give credence to everything. So I, I really didn't want to, give credence to this. But I do believe that it is actually our problem. I don't believe this is, I'm not talking about the issue of Eretz and Hederet as an issue. 
they make they make fun of of of, of from what I understand that these different satirical shows make fun of Torah and they make fun of 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 different uh, uh, figures. Uh, of you know Chazal and 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 biblical figures, they make fun of him routinely. This isn't something that's different. The only difference is that it, the Reb Chaim is, is 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 alive. But like I said, I'm not even questioning whether or not they're making fun. Of, I'm questioning whether or not they're even making fun of Reb Chaim. They could have been making fun of of Yanki, which I'm not so bothered by. But I do think that we have to recognize there's a, there is a a a relationship between the sort of depiction that we have created. Of our gedolim, and through these gadolographies, and and the statue tumbling. If the if the person has never had any fault, then there's no reason to take down his statue. But if the person has never never any fault, then he's not a real human being. As Stephen Harper said, the reason why, the reason why the the, the West is great is because it's honest about who its leaders and founders were. One of the greatest arguments against biblical criticism is the fact that you never find in any other uh, a Bible other than the Old Testament such a an honest depiction of our historic figures. It doesn't mean that there aren't chazal to accompany how we understand what took place. But on its on its on its elementary level, there is criticism. That is how it was written, and we cannot whitewash history because we are afraid of how people are going to respond. We are supposed to recognize that the generations preceding us, in fact, were greater, and we can barely reach their levels, even though. Even though there might be what to criticize, that doesn't mean that they weren't great. Why can't we understand this? Why do we have to create this genre of guttleography? There is what to learn from the Gaim. And if we're afraid of the result of the statue tumbling, that will only be because of our inability to recognize the truth. That has been our show today. I hope that we can inter- uh, understand these ideas. And of course, feedback, I welcome it. The goal is to refine and, and, uh, better, uh, better these, this, this, these, these concepts. So that has been, I've been your host, Ellie Shapiro. This is the morning mix. And, uh, like I said yesterday, we are noticing new listeners and different platforms and we want to hear from you. So please send an email, realtalkisrael at gmail.com. We hope you have a great Shabbos, a great weekend. Please God will be with you again Sunday morning. Bye for now.